Now, what we're about to read is a um, something like 2,400-year-old ancient document written in Hebrew for a people long gone and preserved by God's Spirit for you. But it's not about you. And it's not about me. It's about Jesus. So I want to honor the fact that this is a complicated, difficult document. Frankly, this is one of the harder texts. There's a lot here. But I want to just start by saying at the outset that it's about Jesus. What we're about to read is not about the topics that surface in the text. It's about Jesus who fulfills them. It's not about what you should do. It's about what we can't do, but Jesus did do for you. So we're going to see how Jesus fulfills God's law on our behalf because we never could, which means that in Christ, God's not mad at you. He's not mad at you. That's what we're going to see. We're going to see that the way that we can change to start living the lives that deep down we actually want to live We want to be people of integrity, don't we? The way that we get there is not through to-do lists and effort. It's through looking at, it's through the transformative power of beauty. Looking at something so glorious that it transfigures you from the inside out. Paul calls it being transformed by the renewal of our minds in Romans 12, 2. That's what we're talking about today, but we're going to do it through this ancient text of Malachi 2. So let's read, starting in verse 10 of chapter 2 through 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. And he's married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the, says the Lord, the God of Israel, he covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you seen Father of the Bride? Yeah, Steve Martin movie, uh, Martin Short. Um, I need help, actually, because I couldn't remember. And I didn't look it up. Steve Martin's character's name. George Banks. Thank you. George Banks. George Banks? 
Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Um, <laughs> all right. So <clears throat> there's the scene where George's daughter, Annie, right, breaks off her engagement to Brian. Remember the scene? Um, he, Brian bought her a blender and she thought it was a patriarchal statement of what their marriage would be like. You do the kitchen things and I do the manly things, right? So George, the dad, the father of this offended bride, he takes Brian out for a friendly drink. And he's just, you know, like, hey, tell me what's going on. And he's really kind to him. He shows him a lot of favor and finds out that it was just all a big miscommunication. He just thought she might want to blend something one day, right? And so they get back together and they all live happily ever after. And the father feels really good about everything. And, and that's the end of the story. But what if Brian had horribly betrayed Annie? What if he just said, you know, I'm tired of you and went and found another woman that he was more pleased with. What if that was the scenario? I think instead of going all Steve Martin, he'd have gone all Liam Neeson on him. You know, I have a very particular set of skills. I will find you like that would be, we'd be talking vengeance and wrath, not a friendly drink and fatherly advice. Because when the daughter whom the father loves is betrayed, the father does not show the betrayer favor. That's very important. I have two daughters. If 15 years down the road, some chump betrays them, we're, we're going to be talking Liam Neeson, not Steve Martin again, right? Like that's the scenario that Malachi is painting here. Judah, the husband, has betrayed the daughter of the father, whom the father loves, and then goes, well, why can't we be friends anymore, God? He's like, well, you walked away from my daughter. That's what's going on. Now, there's two major mistakes that we could very easily make in interpreting this ancient text, right? So, um, because the themes of the text, we're talking about marriage, we're talking about divorce, we're talking about God's favor and why don't I have it, right? Um, those themes are there, but that's not why this is in the Bible. So the two mistakes that we can make, one is the first mistake would be to assume that this is in the Bible to condemn divorce, right? That would be the mistake of taking the illustration and making it the main point. That's not why this is here. The second mistake would be to take this as a how-to guide to getting your prayers answered and finding God's blessing and favor. And that would be the mistake of assuming it's about you or me when it's in fact about Jesus. The main point then of this text is that God does not show favor to the faithless, right? They cover the altar with weeping and groaning and tears and say, why don't you listen to my prayers anymore? And God says, look what you did to my daughter. That's the main point of the text. And it's in the Bible to show us why we need a better Judah who doesn't walk away from the bride. That's why this is here. In other words, it's about Jesus. Now let's think just a moment more about the wife because there's these three characters. There's the father, God. There's Judah, the husband, son slash king. And there's the wife, 
Who's the wife? Well, she comes up in verse 11. And it says in verse 11, two things set in parallel, which is the way that Hebrew works often to show that these two things relate somehow to each other. Okay, so the the first thing it says is Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, whom the Lord loves. Uh, Sanctuary just means holy thing or holy one or holy place. That's the first thing. The second thing it says is that Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. Do you see what it's saying? The the holy one that the Lord loves is the bride, the wife. She's holy. She's set apart by the father for the love of the son. But Judah, the husband, has betrayed and abandoned her. He's been faithless then to the covenant and faithless to his marriage. And God does not show favor to the faithless. So when we're talking about the wife, First of all, you got to understand that we're talking about the people of God, the covenant people of God that the king has betrayed. We'll get into that more later. But again, we don't mistake the illustration for the main point. It's actually about turning your back on God. That's what this is about. So here's how we're going to explore that in relation to Jesus in three points today. One, faithless Judah. Two, faithful Jesus. And then three, hope in Christ. Let me pray for the Lord's help. Uh, Father, I... Um, confess that this is your word, not mine. We are your people. And if we are to come alive and see the glory of Jesus in your word, it will be through your spirit. So we ask you to do that now. Illumine our hearts for the glory of Christ. Amen. Now, number one, faithless Judah. Uh, Malachi was written around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's what we call a post-exilic period. Uh, We're talking 450-ish years before Jesus was born. The people, after being carried off into Babylonian and Assyrian exile, um, and now kind of in Persian exile, have been partially returned to their homeland. Just a, a handful of them compared to the many that were taken away. And you'd think coming home, rebuilding the temple, reestablishing the priesthood. You'd think things would be going really well, but in fact, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi all make very clear that things are not going well for the people. They're not revitalizing their worship. They're not going through a revival like we would hope and pray that they they would have been. And the symptom of that, the, the way that they're showing that is they're actually, these Israelite men are divorcing their wives and going and marrying foreign women. That's the historical situation that Malachi is addressing here. Now, we don't know why they divorced them or why they wanted to marry the foreign women. It could have been romance. It could have been money. It could have been social status and connection because remember the Israelites now, the Jews were weak, unprotected, terribly vulnerable, and incredibly poor. And all of their surrounding neighbors had profited on their exile. So they're, you know, anyway, the the point is they weren't happy with their wives and they divorced them to find a wife that they were happy with. And we call that, the scholars call that aversion divorce, aversion divorce. You're averse now to your spouse. These women didn't cheat on them. They were just grown tired of. Isn't that horrible? They just weren't pleasing 
anymore. A virgin divorce like that, it takes marriage, which is this holy picture of the gospel that God designed to point to Jesus, and it treats it like it's about us, not like it's about God. Marriage is about God. Marriage is for God, not about us. We treat it when we, and this is just so common even today, this aversion divorce problem. And it shows that the way that we in our culture, and we're not, I'm not saying out there, I'm saying we have vestiges of this in our own hearts that we need to turn to the Lord in repentance and ask for help. We actually have parts of us that believe that marriage is about self-fulfillment and self-expression, right? We've been, a handful of us have been going through a marriage seminar, and that's a huge part of what we've been learning, that our tendency is to break God's design by saying marriage is meant to make me happy, and if it's not making me happy, I can do whatever I want and walk away. But it's not about us. It's about the glory of God. And when we, as Judah did, by divorcing the wife that didn't please him, when we stop loving what the father loves, we're off course. And when we treat lightly or walk all over what God calls holy, we profane it. Now, this all goes back to what God had said in Exodus and and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy about marriage and intermarriage, right? So there's a good handful of portions of the Bible where God forbids his covenant people to get married to foreign women, right? But this is really important. God is not and never was against interracial marriage or ethnic intermarriage, okay? Any ethnicity marrying any other ethnicity, that's wonderful. God is not against that. God is against religious intermarriage. Now, we know that because think about Ruth, um, the great-grandmother of King David, was a Moabite. Abigail from Carmel. um, Rahab, a Canaanite. Like, these are women in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, from foreign nations but they worshiped Yahweh. That's what matters. That's what's important. Um, Excuse me. It's not about racial intermarriage. It's always been about religious intermarriage. Paul says it really succinctly in 2 Corinthians 6, 14. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now picture two oxen yoked together, pulling a cart or pulling a plow, right? If you yoke an oxen and a goat, it's going to just spin circles, right? It'll follow the stronger of the two or whatever. That's the image that Paul is drawing on. Do not be unequally yoked. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to who you are, foundational for your understanding of yourself, for your purpose in this world, how could we purposefully unite ourselves to someone with whom we cannot share what is most deeply true about us. But that's what Judah was doing. Instead of marrying women who worshiped Yahweh, he was marrying women that were worshiping Asherah and Baal. That's why he says daughters of foreign gods. They were profaning their marriages in Malachi's day. They were walking all over what God said was holy.
Excuse me one second. But that was just the symptom. That's the illustration pointing to the deeper part. The disease below that, in verse 10, it says they were also profaning the covenant. The covenant of the fathers. In other words, Judah was warned against religious intermarriage because it would lead to idolatry. Marrying a woman, marrying someone who doesn't share what's most deeply true about you is a dangerous thing that can lead you to follow them in their loves and what they worship. For instance, descendant of Judah named uh, Shlomo in Hebrew, it's Solomon in English, but I like to think of him as Shlomo. Um, <laughs> in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, here's what it says about Solomon. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And sure enough, his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh his God, as was the heart of David his father. Religious intermarriage, unequally yoked. Think about Solomon's descendant Ahab. Here's what God says about him, uh, what, five chapters later. First Kings 16, verses 30 to 33. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of Yahweh, more than all who went before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter, the daughter of Etbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Whew. Do you see the point? When the king goes after foreign wives, his heart turns toward their gods, and he begins to worship in idolatry. Now, it's important to remember, again, this isn't about us. When he's talking about Judah, um, especially coming off the Genesis series we've been going through, when I hear Judah, I'm thinking the patriarch, son of Jacob, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. When they hear Judah, they think about their vacant throne. See, when they were carried into exile, they had a king. And when they came back 70 years later, they would never have a king again. That throne was empty. And it was meant to be filled by someone from Judah. And they're looking around and Zerubbabel from Judah and Shealtiel from Judah are serving Persian lords. And they're just like the mayor now who serves a greater governor. But when they think about Judah and when the Old Testament people of God think about a king, they also think about a husband. See, the king's coronation was like a wedding ceremony. The husband was brought to his bride. The king was brought to his people. And they were united. They were one. 
So the king is meant to be true to the people. And the people are like the sanctuary. They're holy. God loves them. God has set them aside to be loved and served by the king. And when he betrays the people then, and toys with aversion divorce because they just don't please him anymore, what's the result? The result is he loses the favor of God. God stops listening to them. He stops answering their prayers. He turns away from the offering. He's the father of the bride you betrayed. And yet Judah the king is there weeping at the altar saying, why don't you listen anymore? So that takes us to point number two then. That's faithless Judah. Let's talk about faithful Jesus. Um, you know, Luke 24, Jesus meets the disciples on the road to Emmaus and he explains to them, this is the risen Jesus himself, proven to be God, right? He explains that the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures are all entirely start to finish about him. That will transform the way you read your Bibles. It really will. Without it, we read the Old Testament and create, and the New Testament, and create for ourselves an absolutely crippling set of expectations that we could never meet. We all do it. And Malachi would be a prophet of doom instead of a prophet of hope. But if it's about Jesus, then he met the expectations for you. And he took the wrath for you. And then he rose as the first fruits of the dead for you. Paul says he was raised for your justification. He went to the presence of the Father, stood in front of God the Father, and for all who've put his trust, your, their trust in his name said, they're one of us. They're family. It's been paid for. No more crippling expectations. Freedom. Power. That's why we need Luke 24. That's why the Bible is full of hope and not doom and condemnation. Jesus then is the true son of the father. He's the true husband to the bride, by which we mean the church, the bride of Christ, us all together. He's the eternal king of his people. So where Malachi accuses Judah of profaning the covenant of the fathers, we should expect to find that Jesus whom this is about, does not profane the covenant, but is rather the perfect covenant partner of the Father. He honors that covenant. What covenant are we talking about? Well, the expectations of God's covenant with his people are in the most succinct and clear form in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, where God shows up to Abraham. Here's what he says. He said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me, and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me means don't treat God as theoretical. It means the, the phrase quorum Deo, before the face of God. It means to live your whole life as if God is right next to you and is the realest thing and the truest thing about you. 
Judah treated their governors from Persia as more real than they treated God. And a couple of weeks ago, we covered that and talked about how Jesus is the one who his whole life, everything about him, he related back to God the Father. Who are you? Well, I'm the one that is sent from the Father, and I'm the one who loves what the Father loves, and I'm the one that watches what the Father is doing, so I know what to do, and I listen to what the Father says, and that's what I speak, and I see the works he's doing, and I do those works, and I'm going back to the Father, and I'm reconciling you to the Father. God lived before, Jesus lived before God. He was not theoretical to Jesus. So he's the perfect covenant partner, isn't he? Walk before me. He did that. And then it says, be blameless. And and, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, for our sake, he, God, made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin describes no other human in human history. There's some decent people out there. I'm not one of them on my own. But there's nobody but Jesus you can say was blameless. Nobody you could point to and say, he who knew no sin, she who knew no sin, just him. He walked before God and he was blameless. He's the perfect covenant partner of the Father. And he honored perfectly what Judah profaned. And then you think about Solomon and Ahab again, right? Uh, corrupted by their religious intermarriage. Well, Jesus, indomitable, mighty Jesus, he sends his messengers out to the ends of the earth, all nations and families, to find his bride. And he's not corrupted. He makes them holy. He rescues them out of idolatry, his bride, without succumbing to that idolatry. It's like, remember when um, lepers or the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, they, they're unclean and they touch Jesus. If they had touched any other human, any other Jew, they would have been made unclean, the person touched. But Jesus is contagiously holy. So when they touched him, Instead of them transferring their uncleanness to him, he transferred his holiness to them, and they became clean. He does that with whole people. Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh, and his son ended up ruling just like Egypt and enslaving the people. He was corrupted by their uncleanness and their idolatry and their worship of other gods. Jesus has many Egyptians in his family now, uncorrupted. Many Samaritans, many Canaanites. Jesus was faithful to the covenant that Judah profaned. And Jesus is faithful to the marriage that Judah profaned too. So, you know, against that dark backdrop of aversion divorce, consider the faithful bridegroom. Did Jesus love us because we were pleasing to him? Did Jesus come and find you when you were sparkly and clean? Or were you like me and just in the pit 
nothing to show, nothing to offer. Didn't even have your own feet to stand on. And he came and dignified you. In the, in the meaning of marriage, Tim Keller wrote it this way. On the cross, Jesus did not look down on us with a heart full of admiration and affection. He felt no chemistry, but he gave himself. He put our needs ahead of his own. He sacrificed for us. Jesus loved his bride to the end. When his bride nailed him to a Roman execution rack, he loved her. When we were unlovely and unlovable, he loved you. Praise God. There's no love like that in the world. That's why Jesus is the son slash king slash husband that we need. That's why this isn't about us. And it's not a text to say, here's nine reasons divorce is bad or 12 ways to improve your prayer life and get God's blessing. This is a look at Jesus text. It's why there's no application points in the sermon. The application is one word, believe. It's the, it's the transformative power of beauty. What could be lovelier and more powerful than really beholding the king who died for the unlovely and unlovable bride? That's how you change. That's how you get the power to become a person of faith, a person of faithfulness, a person of integrity. Is you look at Jesus and you believe. Without Christ, we have only ever provoked God to anger. Remember, it says about Ahab in 1 Kings 16, he provoked God to anger more than anybody else, any of the other kings that had ever lived. When Psalm 78, it says, just all the people of Israel have only ever provoked God to anger. That's true of us without Christ too. I have never done anything to provoke God to love me. Never without Christ but he is love. So instead of stirring up wrath against us, he stirs up his love for us. When we're at our worst, he gives us his best. That's why Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And that's when he died for us. And then he interrupts himself to shout, by grace, you have been saved. That's the power. That's the power of the gospel. It's the power to change. It's the power to be and become the kind of person you actually want to be. Not to earn anything, but because Jesus paid it all. Let's go to our last point, hope in Christ, number three. Um, I said at the beginning, and I, and I realized as I wrote it, it was kind of a dismal phrase, and I wanted to make sure that we, I, I gave you a foretaste that there is hope the main point of the text is that God does not show favor to the faithless. And if we took a poll in this room of who's faithless, every hand would be up. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say that we don't sin, we're lying. That's just who, that's who we are. And God does not show favor to the faithless. Well, that seems dismal. It seems hopeless. So Judah Faithless Judah, he goes to the altar and weeps and moans and cries. It's actually very manipulative. He's trying to 
emotionally manipulate God to show him his favor with his way of worship. And he says, why are you ignoring my prayers? Look how sorry I am. Why have you turned your face away? What do I need to do for you to listen again? If we feel that God is ignoring our prayers, that we've put some kind of distance between us and God, the answer is not do better, try harder. The answer is not be faithful or else. The answer is not cry more, sing louder, pray more frequently. It's Jesus. He's faithful when we're not, in every way. And he's faithful for you. He's faithful to you, for you. And when we see that faithfulness, we begin to be moved and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that Michael, one of our elders, preached for us a handful of weeks ago. When we see the glory of God in the gospel, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. One degree of glory, guys. If you're in Christ, you have glory from God for Jesus. And that glory grows brighter and more beautiful the more we take long, good looks at the gospel. That's how it works. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So does sin and faithlessness put distance between us and God? Yes, it does. Do we offend God when we mistreat and disregard the church, the bride of Christ? Yes, we certainly do. Can we fix it by effort and to-do lists? <laughs> no. The Lord fixes us. The Lord heals what is broken. The Lord changes our desires. So we start to love what the Father loves. The Lord renews our minds. The Lord gives us new hearts, and he does it through his Spirit when we gaze at the gospel of Jesus. That's how holiness, sanctification, joy, faith, it's how they work. We need the gospel. Um, that's why that's the application point of the sermon. There is no other. There's no list for you to do. There's just an invitation to keep looking at Jesus. But Malachi, who probably preached this, probably in the temple, in the courtyard, he's a preacher. Malachi had an application point for his people, his hearers, and he repeats it twice. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's in verses 15 and 16. He says, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And he says it again, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. How do we take that from Malachi's day and move it into our day? How do we guard ourselves? Can we? Could they? Jesus' brother, Jude, in verse 24 of his letter to the church, tells us. Now to him who is able to guard you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Who guards you? <laughs> he guards you. He keeps you. We can't keep ourselves. 
I can't even keep track of daylight savings time. <laughs> I was so confused this morning. <laughs> he guards you. And the law then that we receive from Malachi, guard yourselves, points not about, it's not about us, it's about Jesus. It points to Jesus who did, who fulfills it. And he guards us because he's our faithful king. What about the other half? What, what about the other half of Malachi's command? Do not be faithless. First John um, chapter 2, verse 1. Um, I write these things to you, little children, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We're going to be faithless. And that's terrible. But we have an advocate. We have an advocate. Someone's got your back. And it's mighty Jesus. Um, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, Paul says this. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But if we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. All right, so when we see Jesus' faithfulness in the face of our unfaithfulness, and we don't deny him and say, no, thank you, I don't want any part of this, but we receive him. We call that faith, belief. Then he forgives us, begins to heal us, to change us. And he's so unequivocally and indomitably faithful to the core of who he is at his very being, that for Jesus to turn his back on anyone who trusts him would be to ungod himself. He will never do it. You are more secure in Christ than you could possibly imagine. You are more guarded and kept because he is more faithful. Now, conclusion. Um, I want to address as specifically as I can some questions that this text might raise in your minds. The answers to the questions might raise more questions. And I understand that. Um, and I'd love to talk more. If you have those questions, Ryan and I are available. Find us after service, send us an email, whatever. First question, there's four. I think there's four. I wrote the word four, but I don't know if I wrote down four questions. <clears throat> First question, what if I'm unequally yoked right now to someone who's not a Christian? What do I do? Well, divorce is probably not the answer. Um, the Apostle Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians encourages us not to jump ship on these marriages, but to have hope in Christ. Because one of the primary ways that God saves people is by his people and through his people, living lives of faithfulness and mercy and love in such a way that only, you know, glory can only be given to Christ for it. There's tremendous hope. <coughs> Second question. Um, 
What if I am divorced by someone who is faithless to me? You need to know that God knows precisely what that feels like. And you have his compassion, not his anger. And his justice is on your side. He loves his bride. He loves his people and is angry with them and for them when they are betrayed. Third, um, what if I've divorced someone and now I see that it displeases God and, and I feel that I've, I've sinned and I've been unfaithful? What then? That's you or someone you know. You need to know there is no sin so big that it can defeat the mercy of Christ. None. There is no outpacing the grace of God. Jesus' blood shed for you on the cross is more than sufficient to pay for whatever we have done. And at the cross, there is sufficient forgiveness and mercy and grace for you, no matter what. Fourth, lastly, if I'm not living a faithful life, will God ignore my prayers? I don't want to give you a cheap answer. On the one hand, Peter says, um, writing to husbands in the church, and I think he's thinking about Malachi too. He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. Right? Um, the psalmist, I can't remember which psalm, writes it even more clearly. He says, if I had cherished iniquity or sin in my heart, you would not have listened. Okay? So in other words, if we disrespect and disregard God and his people, why would we expect God to be pleased? He's a person. He's three, three persons. But he's, it's a relationship. We can't offend the daughter whom the father loves and expect the father to be perfectly happy to have a friendly chat. But the answer to that problem is, again, not do better, try harder. The answer is stop cherishing iniquity. Ask for Jesus to change what you cherish, and he will. He will renew your mind. He will give you a heart of flesh. He will change your loves to love what the Father loves. And then the glory goes to Jesus. The beauty of the gospel transforms your affections and your will. Because if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. So the one who perfectly has the ear of God who has the favor and blessing of God, you are in him. File your taxes jointly, right? So the IRS regards you as part of that household. So instead of praying harder and doing better, we pray in faith. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name, not our name. In the name of John, amen, gets you nowhere. But in the name of mighty Jesus, the Father listens because of him. So let's do that now. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Lord Jesus, we 
praise you, we admire you for um, the, the scandalous love that you have for us, for loving us when we had nothing to offer you, nothing to please you, nothing to attract you, when there was no relationship chemistry between us, things weren't going really well and you wanted to bump it to the next notch. You loved us when we were dead and dirty. And you've washed us by your blood. And uh, you, you say in Ephesians 5 that you're presenting yourself, I'm sorry, you're presenting us to you one day spotless and radiant. Can hardly believe it, but I believe it. We believe it. We believe you. We love you, and we thank you for that. Thank you for giving us a new heart. Amen.